This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. One game to go before the World Cup and England are in crisis. No goals from open play since John Barnes at the Maracanã relegated for the first time in their history, I think. How will they cope in the championship? So how bad is it and why so? Tactics being worked out or just being on the wrong side of those fine margins? Should all England fans just panic until the World Cup starts? Would a result against Germany make everyone forget or does it not really matter? Is anyone in Europe any good? Defeats for Spain, France and Germany since we were last on. Scotland are on course to go up while Wales are down, the victims of a joyous assist from Robert Lewandowski. We've got some Tiny Nations chat with Tiny Nations expert Paul Watson. Wins for the Pharaohs and Luxembourg and a full report on San Marino nil, the Seychelles nil. There's also an important discussion about mental health and social media. All that plus Tony Adams on Strictly, Mancads, your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Jonathan Wilson, welcome. Morning, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max Russian. And hello, Paul Watson, standing for the whole pod. It's, it is it's quite intimidating. Well, it, yeah, it adds to this thing of being a sub as well. You know, it's like I've been, I was doing my exercises, my podcast exercises, and I got the call to come on, and I didn't really expect it. So I'm, uh, yeah, I didn't even have a chair ready. Well, some, you know, Danny Baker broadcasts standing up because it keeps you alive. So, by, you know, basically you should, you've got to carry us for the whole podcast, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and Tony Poulos always does press conferences standing up. So I, I feel very much as if I'm in the, the Poulos line of sight right now. Does he? Does, yeah. Does, and does his, does his media manager sit down next to him or do they all have to stand because Poulos is standing? Oh, I don't know. He, he, he always comes in, just stands leaning on the back of a chair. And he, he's, he's incredibly good. He does exactly what you want. He gives you five minutes of he'll answer the questions very quickly, you know, pretty cogently, and then he goes. It's it's very efficient. That's what you want after a match because everybody wants to go home. Now, let's start with uh, Italy 1, England 0 then on Friday night. Sorry, I have to bring this game back up. It was absolutely terrible, wasn't it? Um, Joshua says, with England relegated to something, will the pod completely forget about them like the rest of the pyramid that you so clearly have an agenda against? James says, with England relegated and in crisis while Barry was on holiday, has this been his favourite ever holiday. Johnny, how did Barry celebrate England's first ever relegation? Are you cock-a-hoop, Barry? No, not really. I mean, I I was on holiday. I watched uh, the England game in a, an Irish pub in Malta called the Dubliner. 
it wasn't full of Irish people. Um, I think myself and the girl behind the bar were the only two paddies there. I find it hard to get excited about the Nations League, but um, not a good result for England, obviously. And they're in a position now that they haven't been in for at least the last three tournaments insofar as results going into the tournament are really poor. Before Euro 2020, they had six wins in a row. For the World Cup in 2018, they were unbeaten in 10, uh, I think seven wins, three draws. And before Euro 2016, they, they won six out of their final seven games before the tournament. But now they're going into uh, the World Cup on a string of really bad results. A lot of people are saying they have to get a result against Germany. or it'll, I'm not so sure it really matters, but they certainly need a good performance, I think. Uh, no win in five. England's worst winless streak since 2014. Haven't scored a goal in open play in 495 minutes. Wilson, what's happened? Um, I don't think a huge amount has happened, to be honest. I think, I, I, yeah, that, that statistic is clearly true about not you know, worst one in eight, eight and a bit years. But they have played Italy twice, the European champions, Germany, who historically are pretty good, and a resurgent Hungary in those five games. So it's been a pretty tough run of games. And you look at those results in June, particularly those four games, everybody was knackered. You know, the, the, the nature of the COVID season, you know, the, the lack of gap between the seasons, the compression of the calendar, everybody was exhausted. Nobody wanted to be there. And you look at every major nation from Europe and they're all on horrible runs of form. So Italy, I think, have won two of the last six. Germany have won one of the last five, one of the last six. Uh, Spain have won two of the last five. Who have I missed out? I've missed out somebody. Uh, France uh, have won one of the last five or six. Everybody's just knackered. I mean, it's obviously pretty bad preparation for a World Cup. There's now sort of a lack of confidence there. Um, and, and it's also come at a terrible part of the cycle for Southgate that after six years, I think people were starting to get bored of him. You, I think you could sense that even during the Euros, even though England got to the final, they got almost no credit for doing so from some quarters, as if sort of beating Germany and Ukraine and Denmark was... They have a kind of thing they should do in their sleep rather than, you know, actually quite good achievements. And, and yeah, there's this sort of sense of weariness, lack of belief, there's certainly lack of fluency. And, and I, th- I thought the first half on Friday, there was some semi-promising signs. Uh, and then the second half was pretty awful. But even then, you know, the goal came from pretty much nowhere. Uh, you know, long ball, a great first touch and a great finish. Carl Walker didn't, didn't do particularly well. And now there's sort of key players out of form and injuries in key positions, and it, it looks a shambles. But I'm not really sure that you can pinpoint one thing that, ah, oh, it's his fault, this is what they should be doing differently. It's just a combination of circumstance and loss of form and, and injuries. Andrew says, why are England so boring? Which is not normally a question I would necessarily sort of cut and paste into the script, Paul. But I thought it was quite interesting. I wondered if it was because we kind of you're an England fan but in the Nations League you're not really that excited about it so you're just sort of watching it because there's no other game on and then it isn't amazingly exciting but if it was your club you'd be more invested so you would find it more interesting even if it was as boring as that game was yeah I think that's fair to say I think what what maybe gets forgotten a bit is the Nations League obviously is a it's a competition but uh they are just friendlies you know we have to compare this to those drab international friendlies that we used to watch where you know, this would have been, maybe England would have been winning this game, but it would have been against some, you know, second tier nation. And we'd got very little out of that too. So I think there's this expectation that somehow the Nations League has become this really 
you know, exciting tournament that is supposed to be held up in comparison to a Euro or a World Cup. But that's not that's not a fair comparison. You know, these are just friendlies and granted they're more competitive, but but that is all they are. And I think that's maybe England's biggest hope is that how much you can gain from this uh, in terms of how England are going to fare at a tournament is very hard to say because it's a completely different dynamic. And you look at a World Cup with quite a charitable group for England. Say England do cobble together the results to get through that group, which I think still can. Uh, is anyone really going to care? Is it going to matter that we had a terrible Nations League? I, I, I would say not. I'd say it's all about getting those players confident and playing again. And if you've got Iran and the USA, certainly, I think both are winnable games. Uh, Wales, maybe not so much at the moment. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's going to be looking back at our Nations League campaign then when, when we're, you know, if we're headed into the, the knockout stages of a World Cup. So, so Barry, do you think Gareth Southgate is getting it sort of badly wrong or just not quite as right or is doing exactly the same thing and it's just not quite working because players are slightly out of form? Or are there all these, you know, because all these things are picked upon, Saka but left wing back, Ivan Tony taken to Milan but not put on the bench and it's sort of seen as he's lost the plot. I don't think he's lost the plot. I, I found the decision not to include... Ivan Tony in the matchday squad, having him brought him along, a bit odd, but I presume he'll have a role this evening against Germany. Uh, whether it's on the bench, coming off the bench, starting whatever, I, I would be astonished if he doesn't play some part. I I'm not a huge fan of Gareth Southgate as a manager. I mean, I think he's a wonderful statesman and a great diplomat, and he says all the right things. But in terms of managing from the sideline team selections and tactics i've never been that convinced by him i'm slight just to go back to one thing jonathan said that england didn't get the credit they deserve for beating the teams they did on the way to the final of the euros from certain quarters i said okay right Uh, and i was looking at your quarter specifically (laughs) (laughs) but I I didn't give them any credit for getting to the semi-final of the World Cup. I, I do give them credit for getting to the final of the Euros, but I think they then blew that final from a very commanding position. Um, so I, I think you're being slightly unfair to me there. Um, I thought, you know, their run to the World Cup semi-final was a doddle and then they lost against the first good team they played in Croatia. But... Um, I think Gareth Southgate will be gone uh, as England manager, whatever, however they do in the World Cup, whether they win or bomb out in the group stages or somewhere in between. I just think maybe the players are tired of him. The fans are certainly, their patience with him is wearing thin. And you wonder if he does leave the England job, what, what, what job would he get? Say, would he get a Premier League gig? Would he get a one of the big teams in the Premier League? I don't think so. Yeah, but I, I just think I just think national management and club management are two totally different games. I don't think the skills... I mean, obviously they're related, but I don't think they're directly comparable. So I don't think you should walk out of the national team job into a top club job. And equally, I don't think you should be looking at top club managers necessarily to take over national teams. I think they are... Yeah, they're just different skill sets. I think international football, because of the lack of time available... You, you can't put in place sophisticated schemes of pressing or sophisticated at, at, at attacking moves. It, it's much more about getting the basics right. And I think that statesmanship 
you talk about with Southgate is actually a huge part of the national team job. Johnny says, does Jonathan think England should switch to 4-3-3? As this conversation again, how exciting. Uh, be more front-footed rather than conservative. Does Southgate have the conquers to drop players? It seems he's too close to most of them, too nice, afraid to hurt their feelings. Well, I, I think he's got a very clear policy that he'll play a 4-3-3 in games where he expects to dominate possession. So for instance, the Iran game, first game of the World Cup, I'd be surprised if that's not 4-3-3. I mean, you know, if you've watched Iran at all in qualifying, and if you've ever watched the Carlos Queiroz team, you'll know that, that I mean, I, you know, I watched far too much Egypt under Carlos Queiroz, and that is a miserable, miserable experience. That game will be a truly dreadful game of football. And Iran will sit 48 players in their own box, and, and England will have to will struggle to break them down. Well, there's no point going into that with a back three and two holding players. So I think, and you saw this at the Euros, that uh, against... Germany and against Italy, England played the back three because they didn't expect to dominate possession. The other games, they did expect to dominate possession, played a 4-3-3. I, I, maybe he has changed that, but I don't think the fact he played a back three against Italy on Friday, and I think he'll probably play a back three tonight. Maybe he'll play a, a, a back four tonight just because he wants to practice that. But I, I would have thought his instinct would be the back three against against Germany. So I, I think that's a slightly misleading question. It's not one or the other, it's, it's both. What was the other part of the question? Oh, has he, yeah. has he, is he prepared to drop it? He's dropped loads of people. I mean, he regularly leaves out fan favourites. Yeah, he didn't pick Grealish for ages. If he, the turnover players from the World Cup four years ago is... is did he drop Rooney or is that someone else? He dropped... Oh, I, I can't I remember think he now, did. But, yeah, yeah, I think he did. I think he did, yeah. Uh, but he didn't do it in the big sort of showy way that Steve McLaren dropped David Beckham and then had to crawl back to him. He, he just sort of moved on. I, I think he's he has actually been quietly ruthless. I mean, it's, that World Cup squad from four years ago is it's pretty hard to name. I mean, the fact that people like Ruben Loftus twenty eighteen were yeah. in. It. I mean, Lingard and Deli Ali started the semi final, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're sort of high profile examples of people who who've lost form. So, so maybe that's not quite the. Uh... Well, I, I I guess the question there it's Harry Maguire they're talking about, isn't it? But I I, I would counter that with what Southgate counters that with, which is what he sees in in in. In England games, apart from that game against Denmark, uh, when he was sent off after half an hour and was absolutely awful, which was at you know just after the the whole arrest in Greece, when you know he, his you know his his form was was really really atrocious and his brain seemed to have been scrambled by everything. Apart from that, I don't think Maguire's played badly for England. And if you want a you know play to play on the left of the three, it's him or Tomori or Gay. But Tomori and Gay have barely had any national football. So I understand why Southgate trusts Maguire. And Maguire is a major threat from set plays. I, I, I thought in many ways the most disappointing thing on Friday was how poor the set plays were. And that's almost a reason in itself to get Trippier back in the side. That said, it may be that Southgate's just not using the set play plans that he will use at the World Cup because he doesn't want to give people a clue that, of what he's about to do. Ah, stealth. You could do that for seasons and <laughs> seasons, couldn't you? You could keep saying, I'm not doing it. I'm waiting for next season. This is going to be the thing. The, uh, um, Paolo said, I stopped really watching the England game at 42 minutes and just read stuff on Twitter instead. Can the panel discuss their professional techniques for keeping watching that level of tedium? Is there some stuff I can do in the week to practice or is there a class I can take? I don't know. how. Like I definitely, Paul, I moved away. My favourite moment in the game was actually Johnny Nicholson, mate of the pod from Football 365, sending a completely unconnected tweet saying he had a mate who thought Del Piero was his full name and called him Derek. And that, that, yeah, that, I saw that. That was brilliant. <laughs> that got me through the second half. 
I think Twitter's an amazing resource for that. I always watch games with uh, a Twitter feed close at hand when it's, especially when it's England playing, just because it is like a support group. It gets us all through, you know. It's um, I kind of look at all the games I watched growing up and all the England games, all the Bristol City games without Twitter, and I can't imagine how I got through it. To be totally honest, yeah, and maybe it does change how you watch the. You end up not watching it. Really? Yeah, but that's that's the best thing with a game like that. It really is the best thing to do. It was it was from from minute three or four. It was quite clear what we were about to be subjected to, and I, you know, and like with all these things, it's say, you know, what what can we take from it? What can we learn? Well, there are things that if you try hard enough, we can pick out of this. But actually, in honesty, we don't learn very much. And I think really the best thing we can all do is just get on with it, get it done and, and move on. Just never, never, never say that with freelance journalists in the room. There's a huge amount we can learn from every game. We should be writing more about it. Is this them. possibly why I'm where I am and where you are where you are in your career? But Well, I can afford a chair. That's all I'd say. Well, I'm the guy that was at San Marino Seychelles, so who knows? We'll get to that. And Andrew says, uh, is, is it no longer the curse of ITV, but the curse of Channel 4, Barry? I mean, it is pretty astonishing that Channel 4 went big to buy the Nations League. And they've, it's just really not fair on them, is it? Did you see the Richard Jolly stat that Channel 4 broadcast? I can't remember the number. It was 7,000 and something episodes of Countdown for every goal they've broadcast. <laughs> oh, God. I saw that advert and it was something like, can England reclaim their mojo? And you could just see the marketing people thinking, what, what can we say about this game? <laughs> and, uh, How many of those episodes of Countdown did Johnny Lou win? Uh, eight, eight is the, the maximum we were allowed. The, the best bit of the game actually was the women singing the national anthem for Italy who had a big red robe on and then sang God Save the King. And then just before the Italy anthem, like in a sort of, uh, Bucks Fizz style just <laughs> threw off the robe and had an Italy kit on <laughs> this is ridiculous anyway uh, if you're interested in England's group the USA lost 2-0 to Japan Iran beat Uruguay 1-0 which sounds ominous to me um, uh, we'll do Wales in a bit and that'll do for part one part two um, we'll discuss if any European team is good anymore Finding your perfect home was hard but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. James says, is there any European national team playing well? They all seem to be losing to teams they shouldn't be. World Cup heading to Brazil. So Spain lost at home to Switzerland. Germany lost to Hungary uh, um, on, was it Friday night? Yeah. And France lost to Denmark last night. What does that mean, Wilson? Everybody's knackered. I mean, it's partly, it's the strength of the, it's, it's both the strength and the danger of, of a Nations League that you, you get um, games that matter between decent teams. And also perhaps a team like Denmark, who, I don't know, you sort of box them off as being small nation, but potentially dangerous on their day. They're actually really good at the minute. And I think the Nations League is, is showing that. Uh, I think, I mean, the the, the, nation, the next edition of the Nations League, I think, is when they're going to try and bring in the 10 Commonwealth teams. And the thing I read said that the six highest ranks, ranked Commonwealth teams were going to go into League A and the... the 
other four in the League B. I don't know what that means if there's any fewer European uh, sides in there. Uh, so I don't quite know how that, that's going to work if indeed FIFA allowed them to do it. I mean, this is a slightly side issue. But Argentina have gone have gone on this 34-game unbeaten run. And in that time, 31 of those games have been against Commonwealth sides. And they're really struggling to get games against top-class European opposition because the European teams are busy playing the Nations League. So they played Italy um, beginning of June in that, what was it called, the Coppa Finalissima, um, and played really well, beat them 3-0. And then they've played Estonia and they played uh, Honduras on on Friday night, Saturday morning. And they've got a game against Jamaica, I think tonight, or maybe tomorrow night. I get time zones mixed up. But they'll basically, in the three years leading up to the World Cup, they'll have played four games against teams from outside their own continent. And that's a problem. I get completely why the likes of Argentina sort of think, well, hang on, we're getting shut out of this. But equally, if you then get the best South American teams playing in the Nations League, what do the best African teams do? What do the best Asian teams do? What do the best CONCACAF teams do? You could, what you could do is every few years have like a tournament where they all came together <laughs> and you found out who was yeah. the best one. Um, I, I don't know if anyone saw this, um, Ash said, why are the Spanish nets so deep? Did anybody, I, they were absolutely they're massive, weren't brilliant. They? they seem to go on for about eight foot, he said. <laughs> and then he continues, Ash, in our beloved post-Brexit Britain, should we return to the glorious days of the net grimly hanging straight down? You know, just absolutely nuts. They were so big. It was it was like, I think Sid tweeted a picture. It's really worth checking out. I was in Zaragoza, the game, and it was, yeah, I mean, that was that was the highlight of that game, if you ask me. Um, but you wanted to talk about, like, who in South America is good? Well, Brazil and Argentina are both good. Argentina... Beat Brazil in the, in the Copa America final last year, um, but I, I, I'd say look, Brazil. The other people will know far more about Brazilian football than me. Their, their results look good, so I think they're I think they're the bookmakers' favourites for the World Cup. I, I totally understand that. Um, yeah, they, they they clearly are playing very well, and they won the Copa America the year before the last one. Um, I guess they come along so frequently now. The Copa Americas, but Argentina. I sort of I was having this discussion. I think this might be in terms of individuals the weakest Argentina squad that's gone to World Cup since 1934. And yet, I think it's probably got the best chance of winning since 1986. Maybe maybe the Bielsa team in 2002. Um, they're just really well balanced. And Messi is playing brilliantly. So they they, they beat Algiers 3-0. And Algiers are not a team you really want to be playing in a friendly because they're really nasty and physical. And, and Argentina just dealt with it incredibly calmly. Messi drifting off the right, um, links really well. They have Papu Gomez on the left and Lautaro Martinez through the middle. He set up the first goal with this brilliant little scoop pass over the top from sort of a classic number 10's position and then Gomez squared it for, for Martinez. The second was a sort of one of those little slip-through balls that Argentinians see as being their birthright. That's that's the key part of, of their football. This moment, La Pausa, they call it, the moment of pause when suddenly the the pieces fall into place and you see the path and he plays that pass and Gomez is, is pulled back and Messi scores a penalty. And then I think in some ways the most impressive goal is the third, not just because of the finish, which is this sensational first-time chip from Messi, but the way that the, the, the midfield pressed. And okay, it's only Honduras. Other teams will do this better. But um, Fernandez, the, uh, Enzo Fernandez, the Benfica midfielder, driving forward, winning the ball back, giving it to Messi, and then the finish. So they just look really well organised, really well balanced. And it's just an extraordinary story that they had 20 years of, 25 years of incredible talent and have struggled to put it together and, and create a team that actually functions as a team. 
And now as loads of the great attacking players have fallen away, and they've, Lionel Scaloni became manager after the last World Cup, largely because he was cheap. He had no experience in management. And now they're three games off a world record for unbeaten matches and, and they're playing really, really well. And Messi looks as good as he has done in five or six years. Uh, let's talk about Scotland beating Ireland. Um, Scotland might be, Ed says, Scotland might be promoted and England relegated. Will Fitbar Corner now be a weekly thing on the podcast? I wouldn't necessarily go that far, Ed. Um, um, but Barry, you watched this. Uh, you were not unimpressed with Ireland, but Scotland, you know, had two really brilliant results. I mean, someone asked me the other day, they, there are still people out there who don't know what the Nations League is. And I think this game kind of epitomised what it's all about. It's a brilliant atmosphere. It was a good game. Uh, I thought both teams played well. Scotland won. Uh, they now need to a draw, I think, against Ukraine tomorrow night. And uh, they'll get promoted at England's expense. But, um, you know, neither of these teams are going to the World Cup. Uh, so they could probably have been forgiven for not being that bothered about the game. But it was a real full-blooded, entertaining game of football between two fairly mediocre teams, but both of whom played played well, I thought. Craig Gordon had an interesting night before the game, left the training camp to be with his wife as she gave birth to their son, Axel. Uh, he said, I got the call at about half past 10 to say the baby was on its way. I got to the hospital. It was not until nearly seven o'clock this morning that he was born. I got back to the team hotel about 10.30, managed to get about five hours sleep. I was fine. It was just a great morning. It'll hit me later when the tiredness kicks in, but I had so much adrenaline from the day that I felt good up there. De delighted I got back in time to play. Quite interesting, Paul, I guess, that elite sport is seen as this thing where you don't just go, do you know what? I'm having two weeks off. I always find that really, really weird. There are, there are, there are much more important jobs in the world where you would just say, I'm, I'm not doing it. Like, you know, my child's arrived in the world. I want to be there. And then in football, it's seen as like, oh, I've got to get back for the Papa John's trophy, you know. And <laughs> it's seen as something to be commended, which I guess in a way it shows commitment to your job. But I sometimes feel it, find it a little bit sad. Like, you know, that you'd miss these like precious first moments you never get again to play in a, a glorified friendly. You know, it, I don't know. Maybe I'm being harsh, but it, it it almost strikes the other way to me. It's like... But it, it, and it's, it's, it used to be worse as well. So I remember talking to Dennis Stewart and he, I can't remember which of his sons it was, but he was playing with Manchester City at Molyneux, got in the dressing room at half time and there's a phone call on the phone in the dressing room. So this is, I don't know, 1980, 1981, something like that. The manager answers the phone and goes, oh, okay, uh, Dennis, it's a boy. And that's it. I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I, I, I have this memory and it might be nonsense of, of John Barnes being on Super Sunday in the sort of keys and grey years. Yeah, I think that happened. And, and, and at half time, someone said, you know, your wife is in labour. So look, well, you know, off you go. And he went, oh, no, no, I'll stay till the final whistle. Like, he was just a pundit on the, on the thing. I, I don't know. But I, I think you're right, Paul. It does. It is seen as a kind of badge of honour, as a kind of, you know, obviously Craig Gordon managed to have, do both. But you know that you know. In my limited experience of one, there's still shit to do. <laughs> it's not like born great, <laughs> see you in eighteen years. Um, but you know, I wouldn't put that on him. I just think that is the culture. Mm. Actually, it's the culture of of elite sport, I guess. Yeah, and 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 I think it. You know, it speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to uh, you know not to get too serious about it, but it speaks to the view of player welfare and this idea that players can't be human in a certain regard because they're paid so well, because they're such such sort of uh, heroic public figures or, or villainous public figures. Um, the idea that they can't be humans and just say, 
you know what? This is a once in a lifetime moment. I'm going to go do that instead of a Nations League game. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great in you know in the papers when it said you know doubt. Yeah. Stephen Bergwine <laughs> brackets paternity leave. You know. <laughs> anyway, um, Glenn says hi Max. Wondering what Barry's thoughts are on how long Stephen Kenny should get the job in Ireland. Personally, I like the players he's brought in, the process in the style, but he does need to start getting results. Yeah, that's fair enough. He had a very long honeymoon period because when he got the job. Uh, it was during the pandemic. The squad was decimated with COVID. Uh, he took ages to get his first win. But now he has the players he wants. He's he's brought in a lot of good young players. He's got the players he wants. They are finally look to be attuned to his style of play. And there are people who didn't think he should get the job in the first place. I wasn't one of them. Then there were people who thought, it's not working, get rid but he, he signed a new contract. And, yeah, I, you know, they played well against Scotland, but they lost, and they do need to start getting results. But I... Uh, Troy Parrott had that amazing chance, did he? Oh, God, that was shocking. Just a, a Ireland attacked on the break with Michael Obafemi and Troy Parrott in a two-on-one. Uh, Obafemi picked him out with an inch-perfect curl pass, and he was one-on-one with... Uh, Father of the year, Craig Gordon, and uh, just hit a very weak shot straight at him. And that's that's the kind of chance you you just got to score that, really. Um, uh, since we were last on Wales, have lost twice. They lost to Belgium in, what, the game played more than any other in international <laughs> football, unless Denmark Ireland is up there, isn't it? Kevin De Bruyne actually said, I'm bored of playing Wales, which I really enjoyed. I don't, Kev, Kevin De Bruyne got an awful lot of abuse for that that comment. I think Wales fans took it very personally as a slight on them, but I, I think he was just, you know, if it had been any other team. I, I do remember our, there was a time when Ireland just seemed to play Denmark all the time, the, the, the only games we ever played, and I think... Christian Eriksen sort of went, oh, crikey, <laughs> you know, I'm sick of playing Ireland. And uh, I kind of took it as a compliment, to be honest, but uh, I get why you would not want to be playing the same team and over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, look, um, uh, look, Wales obviously don't care because the World Cup is such a special thing for them. Uh, and so, they're, you know, it was a very depleted side that lost to Poland. The assist from Lewandowski was absolutely glorious uh, in that game. Um, Northern Ireland, meanwhile, their first ever Nations League win. Um, two goals in the last 10 minutes. Uh, Josh McGuinness in injury time with a 2-1 win over Kosovo. Neil says, good to see traditional whipping boys, Faroe Islands and Luxembourg, dishing up some wallops. Surely this is what the Nation League was made for. Uh, John says, anyone from the Faroe Islands available to do a, a voice note monologue? Um, they beat Turkey, Paul. That is is stunning for the Faroe Islands. They did. And it, I saw this stat of, was it 50,000 population to 84 million population? Wow. I mean, it actually is, it's the real testament to Faroes is obviously growing up, they were sort of a byword for a joke game. You know, it was the Faroe Islands, San Marino, uh, and actually Luxembourg too, back in back in those days, you know. And it's just a testament to the development that, and the work that these, these nations have put in. The Faroes have these crazy stats, like it, they may have, the, the biggest percentage of the population play local football, I think, of anywhere in Europe. I think that's true. Uh, and the, they've got the biggest sort of percentage of fans who watch uh, football too. So, like, you know, it's, it's a passionate place about football. But I think what they've done is they've got these brilliant facilities, got amazing 3G pitches everywhere, got a very forward-thinking policy uh, to football development. And they've they've sort of... 
um, they've just got better and better gradually to the point where it's almost happened in plain sight that it's not that weird that the Faroe Islands are winning games. Whereas go back 10 years and they were the team that were losing 6 or 7 nil. Yeah, of course, my only note is they st- they don't have that keeper with the bobble hat anymore. No, his son plays, though. His, I think his son is... Stop a, it. I think his son is in either in the national side or he's definitely is a player, his son. Uh, oh, yeah. that's brilliant. Pretty sure. I, pres- I, I presume he has to wear the hat. No, he's a striker, oh. so I think it would go down badly, I think. I think he's a no, striker. I still, think he could, I still think you could wear a bobble... You know, like five aside in deep winter, I think you can get away with a, a, a bobble hat. And as, as you and I chatted on the radio yesterday, Barry, Turkey are the dark horses for the World Cup. We don't actually know if they've qualified. We couldn't remember, but, you know, they're, they're always the dark horses, aren't they? Um, is Luxembourg beating Lithuania, Paul, a, a huge surprise? It feels, surface area-wise, it feels like it must be. No, uh, I'd actually say no. I, I, it's got to the point, again, you know, Luxembourg are, Lux, what Luxembourg did that's very clever is re- recognising that they're a tiny FA, tiny population base, uh, but they're surrounded by very talented footballing nations. They've just done a very good job of uh, blooding young players within leagues around them to the extent where, Actually, Luxembourg's team just, again, a more extreme example of the Faroe Islands. They've just been getting better and better and better. Uh, they, they troubled Portugal, didn't they, quite recently? Um, like it, it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise to me to see them, to see them beating Lithuania. I think Lithuania are in a bit of a slump, but no, like, I mean, Luxembourg, they, I think I'm right. So they drew with Turkey. They had that cracker with Turkey, three all. Um, you know, uh, and I think they beat Lithuania back in the first match day. So it really wasn't a surprise to me. No, but but it's an amazing testament to how far a tiny nation can get, really. Um, all right, that'll do for part two. Part three will begin with Paul's uh, in-depth report on San Marino nil, the Seychelles nil. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Nag says, San Marino draw against the Seychelles discuss. You went... Paul. And presumably both these sides are thinking we don't win a lot. This is a chance to win. So nil-nil is actually hilarious. Well, it's the weirdest friendly. It was the weirdest friendly from start to finish. Um, but the, so San Marino, obviously, <clears throat> bottom of the FIFA rankings, have been for years in the men's side. And that's that's a situation that's been brought about largely because they always play European teams. So we, we touched on this a bit with the other end of the scale. Argentina struggle because they always play within South America. Well, San Marino had only ever played one, well, very recently, one game against uh, non-European opposition. They played Cape Verde uh, and lost last year. So San Marino got this opportunity to play Seychelles in a friendly. And it's it's this thing of like, if you're always playing European opposition, who's to say actually that you should be 211th in the world? You always lose, but you're playing against teams that objectively are going to be stronger than, you know, the Cook Islands, Tonga, uh, maybe Anguilla, those kind of Caribbean nations. So when this fixture came up, I couldn't quite believe it existed, but the Seychelles somehow had booked themselves in to come and play San Marino. Uh, and the Seychelles were five games, five losses in a row for the Seychelles. There's a bit of sort of quibbling going on because they picked an entirely domestic squad. They, they refused to bring any players playing outside the Seychelles. And they were also going from 30-degree heat to a pretty chilly night in Italy or San Marino. So um, this looked like the perfect opportunity for San Marino to to finally pick up this win, which they haven't won since 2004 when they beat Liechtenstein. 123 games later without a win. Um, And so it was all setting up. It was a now or never moment. Um, And to make matters 
even more crazy, Seychelles pulled out of the friendly at a week's notice. So they said, no, it's not on. Uh, San Marino FA put out a very terse statement and then the friendly was back on. So I think what had happened is they'd said, look, you've got to pay some of our costs. We didn't realise it's so expensive. So basically, Seychelles arrived the night before the game in Rome, uh, had to get all the way over to San Marino on the day of the game, turned up looking <laughs> just like anyone would, looking knackered, cold, fed up, miserable. And San Marino, this is their game of their, they call it, there's some people were slightly tongue-in-cheek, but call it the, the, game of, the game of their history. This is the one chance. But the problem for San Marino is their striker, their, their sort of great white hope, the, the big guy that they're all pinning their hopes on, Nicola Nani, is, is injured. And he's the guy that scored against Poland. They did lose 7-1, but they scored. Uh, he's six foot five. He's massive. He's been playing professionally in Italy, unlike most of them. He's actually playing in Sardinia for Olbia. So they didn't have their best striker, which was ominous. And sure enough, that pretty much set the tone. So San Marino, first time in their history, dominated possession, dominated the ball. Uh, they were desperately, desperately trying to find a way through this this very well-organised. And to be to be honest, you should be very proud of this Seychelles team. They just resisted. <laughs> they looked like the most miserable group of people I've ever seen, but they resisted and resisted. And uh, San Marino hit the post. Um, Stefanelli headed it onto the post. Um, but it was really sad because at the start of the game, there was a sort of a very small crowd, 300 to 400, mostly kids from a soccer school, a lot of them. But there was a slight sense of euphoria, you know, San Marino dominating. This is the day, this is the day. But as it sort of got into the later second half, it got quieter. And these little kids started sort of piping up with these uh, these sort of comments about, you know, basically quite rude comments about the San Marino team. So by the end, it was actually an almost silent atmosphere, except for a few sort of 12-year-old voices piping up, insulting their own team. Uh, as it ran, the clock ran down and San Marino were just, you know, it was just ball in the box, couldn't get any result. Ball in the box, couldn't get any result. And um, Was there a Seychelles moment? Was there like a, was there one attack that the Seychelles yeah. had? Seychelles actually nearly scored quite early on, which would have been just really <laughs> devastating for San Marino because they'd know then they needed two, which is <laughs> San Marino. Next, next I, love, I love San Marino going, next goal's crucial. Everyone's like, no, you know, it doesn't work for us, you know. <laughs> no, it doesn't quite work. But honestly, the one thing that I found really sweet, so San Marino got this little fan, fan club, fan club of seven people uh, who were there. They're usually more than that, but because it's midweek, it's a friendly. Uh, and they call themselves the Brigata Mauna Joya, so never any joy brigade. And they pride <laughs> themselves on going to every San Marino game, uh, every home game, and they never, ever see him win. But these guys are actually Italians and Germans. Uh, one, one German and a bunch of Italians. And they support San Marino because they love the underdog so much. And they sang the whole way through, these Italians, you know, on their feet, chanting, 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 while the rest of the Samarinese just kind of looked on <laughs> slight bafflement. Uh, and so these six or seven guys had this massive existential crisis. If they finally won a game, would they have to disband their, <laughs> their fan club? So it got sort of got to the end and I felt I could see a tiny bit of relief in their faces that this wasn't the moment that they had to... Uh, had to sort of accept their fair weather fans after all. Do we do we have any idea why this or how this game happened? Because I, I was just wondering, when I saw it was on, I just wondered, is it because, I don't know, if, if a FIFA Congress has arranged alphabetically, <laughs> I think mm. I think there's only Senegal would be in between them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Senegal is really awkward gooseberry, kind of like having to sit back as these notes have passed between them. Or, or is there some sort of San Marinese businessman with a, I don't know, a holiday letter in Seychelles or something? I could imagine. I had the same thought. I was imagining the Seychelles saying, isn't this quite a long way away? And saying, no, look, it's two places alphabetically. It's just... It's... No, I, I don't honestly know. And I, 
I suspect that, um, you know, San Marino have been actively courting um, non-European teams for some time. The fact they got uh, Cape Verde out there was quite a big a, a big achievement. So maybe Seychelles saw that and thought, well, I'll, we'll, we'll pop over. But it was such a hiding to nothing for Seychelles that I couldn't understand it. Um, <laughs> we even had a few suggestions. It may have been something nefarious going on, but if that was a, a match-fixing front, then they did a very good job of hiding it. <laughs> A uh, bit of EFL. I, I, Wilson, I, I presume Sunderland didn't play for international call-ups at, at the weekend. How are they going? There's no championship. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're in the championship, aren't they? I just presume they're in League One. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, you can edit that out or keep it in as as you see fit, Joel. My, my apologies. Have Have you seen their goal of the century, Max? Oh, yeah. It's so good, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. Wonderful team effort. Um, I, I, I just can't. I, I watched it about 50 times. I couldn't believe my eyes. But, uh, this is a very, very odd Sunderland team. I've never seen a Sunderland team quite like this. I, I, was, I went to see them at Watford when they twice went behind, twice came back and drew 2-2. And a draw was probably about fair. But um, 20 minutes ago, Sunderland just brought on this, this crash. Like all these 18 and 19-year-olds. And they all run about really quickly and they're all really good on the ball. And suddenly we have a really, really good young bench so um the the, the bloke who equalized is sort of was quite hyped jerson bennett who's his 18 year old costa rican who, who should be at the world cup uh they've got uh Ahmad Jallo from manchester united who looked very very lively and you can tell he's you know he he is a very very technically good player but the one who really stood out for me was abdullah bar who's a we got him from la Havre. he's uh france on the 20th national and just the pace and energy he had in midfield just Watford just could basically, he was a sort of his, it, it was like a much bigger uh, N'Golo Kante, that every time Watford came forward, he somehow won the ball, even if he'd started 50 yards away. His pace was phenomenally, uh, so yeah, even though it was only a draw and slightly frustrating, and, and the championship being the league it is, Sunderland are fifth, but they're five points off relegation. And I'm still looking at that relegation issue rather than the promotion issue. Uh, but, <laughs> and the disruption with Alex Neal leaving hasn't been great and... I think in the five games since he went, two wins, two defeats and a draw, uh, Tony Mowbray wasn't there for the first of those defeats, which was against Norwich. When they they actually played very, very well for about an hour, 65 minutes, and then got beat 1-0. Just sort of, yeah, Norwich had, had sat off and, uh, yeah, classic sort of counter-attack. That's okay. That was enough, Sunderland. I think everybody had probably zoned out halfway through that draw with Watford. Uh, Joe says, uh, how would you spend £1,800 in the Norwich club shop, given the opportunity? Um, uh, the Foreign Office spent more than £4,300 of public money on two trips to the hairdresser and nearly £1,900 at the Norwich City FC online shop when Liz Truss uh, was at the helm, uh, according to... Uh, uh, official documents. I did actually on Saturday's radio show on TalkSport get the assistant producer to try and spend £1,800 at the Norwich City Club shop. And literally, you have to buy the whole shop. It's like like her entire family must be completely decked out in Norwich City tracksuits. She's got so many <laughs> Norwich City tra- trinkets. I mean, the, 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 you know, the home strip is like all home kits of 88 quid, like too expensive. But like most of the stuff is startlingly good value there were some Norwich City earbuds sort of like earrings little I think they're little canary earrings so if we see you know at some state dinner or whatever or some important press conference Liz Truss coming out with little Norwich City earrings well no she's got them um Sam says has Wilson ever been man-cadded or has he done it to an opponent um uh, and 
for people who don't like cricket, what's the equivalent in football? This was after the uh, third one-day international between England and India's women, where India won by a man-cad, and there's been a furore since. I don't think there is an equivalent in football because it's something that's totally within the laws of the game, but broadly speaking, against the spirit of the game. So the people who don't know what it is, it's when the bowler, in their bowling stride, sort of stops, and if a non-strike has wandered out their crease... Uh, to you know, sort of steal a couple of couple of feet to, to make the run, takes the bales off and runs them out. So no, I have never been man cadded. Uh, I did almost the closest I've been to to a man cadding issue was I was it was an, it was an inter club friendly before the season began, and I came in the bowl and the, the non strike just he just put me off by moving, so I stopped, and it looked like I was about man cadding, but genuinely I'd just been put off because he suddenly kind of I was aware of him being too far forward. Uh, which served as a warning to him. He didn't do it again. Personally, I think it was totally fine in the specific moment that Charlie Dean was wandering way forward. However, cricket's got a massive problem because you can't have that being a regular thing because overrates are already an issue. And if you have people sort of stopping their bowling action you know, on a regular basis to try and run people out, yeah. the game's going to become even more disjointed. So... The, the funniest bit was um, a, a, a footage during the round from two years ago where England were playing India and the England wicketkeeper dropped a catch and it rolled behind her and then she just picked it up and pretended she'd caught it, hoping that it hadn't been caught on film. And they were saying, well, if you're that pissed off about this, you should probably, you should probably say, look, two years ago, you just this literally was just rolling on the floor and just scrabbling around trying to pick it up. Would a would, uh, footballing equivalent be, say, taking a free kick quickly before the other team are ready? Maybe. Maybe that is the closest, but... Yeah, possibly. I just thought, I mean, Don Hutchison had that, those two in quick succession in 2000, 2001. It's probably more scoring a goal when um, the other team have kicked the ball out. Yeah. Well, when a player's down, if a, if a player, in, your opposition player's injured, but you carry on. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. It's like if within the rules, it's like that Sheffield United one or whatever, you know, you, you, the player's down or you don't throw it back to the opposition and you run through and score. I would say that is the equivalent. Paul says, in-depth analysis of Tony Adams' performance on Strictly, please. Um, Charlie says, which member of the England Euro 96 squad do you think would possibly be a worse dancer than Tony Adams? Steve Stone at a push? Was Steve Howie in that squad? I can't imagine Howie's a great dancer. And I thought, I didn't obviously didn't see it, but I saw the video of it. Um, it he recreated the dance that he did at Granada which actually is really, really brilliant. The thing that everyone ripped it out of him at Granada, he did on Strictly. I mean, he's, I don't think he's going to win, but I don't know who else is in it. But anyway, uh, there we go. Finally, Barry and I are going to have an awkward conversation about uh, Twitter. Um, and I don't know, Paul and Wilson, you're welcome to stay or not. It's totally up to you. Um, uh, but if you are still here, then we'll, we'll, we'll have it. And Barry, you've been forewarned about this conversation, just, just so you know. Um, just so everybody knows. It seems to be a lot more awkward for you than it is for me, Matt. So carry on. Yeah. Well, I sort of feel like I'm about to... Well, not sort of tell you... I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's have the chat and see how it goes. Like, you know, we're all friends here. Um, uh, yesterday, um, a sports journalist called Harry tweeted, horrifying anxiety attack, thoughts a mess, jumbled up, wife terrified as it came so suddenly, head pounding now. And you tweeted, can I ask, how does this happen? I wake up, crack on and don't have a meltdown. You wake up and do, what are you anxious about? And there has been a big sort of Twitter storm since then. He actually very politely replied to you and you didn't reply to him, certainly not until this morning, but spent a lot of time tweeting people who were angry with you 
and it just sort of turned into a big shitstorm. We had, lo we had loads and loads of questions on it and it didn't feel right not to talk about it. Um, but I, you know, so I can ask a few of them. Tom says, for all the work that the pod does on serious issues like addiction, racism and homophobia, can Barry please explain his tweet tonight, which had a very much, quote, just get on with it feel towards extreme anxiety. Scott, I've got to say... Well, can, can I deal with that question first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. So uh, that very much wasn't my intention to suggest that Harry should just get on with things or the people who have mental he health issues should get on with things. I was genuinely curious to know what an anxiety attack is because I've never had one. I uh, Listeners may disagree. I don't think I have mental health issues, uh, but I quite curious about them so when harry who has spoken about his mental health issues on twitter before said what this anxiety that he was having this awful anxiety attack i was genuinely curious to know how such things manifest themselves because i honestly don't know so if i conveyed the impression that i thought he should just get on with it that certainly wasn't my attention intention and i apologize for that but what I did want to know was, you know, what is an anxiety attack? How does it manifest itself? But you said to me this morning before we came on air that uh, even that was a crass question to ask. Uh, I don't necessarily agree. Twitter's probably not the place to ask that question. But I thought as Harry was brought up the subject, I could ask. But it, it certainly wasn't my intention to suggest uh, people with mental health issues should get, just get on with things. Uh, my late father had mental health issues and, and it was horrible for him and it was horrible for us uh, living with him when he, you know, the black dog descended. So, uh, yeah, that's the answer to that question. Uh, do you mind if I jump in and say, I didn't expect to necessarily say it, but um, I actually, I saw, did see the tweets and I personally, I, I'd never had anything, any kind of anxiety issues at all, as far as I was aware I'd hear people talk about anxiety um, and I guess I had an image of what that meant and it just like being anxious in normal life uh, and I'd always kind of wondered how it could be such a big deal um, and then about three years ago sort of out of the blue I had a enormous anxiety attack and I'd never felt anything like it and I think the thing that I couldn't convey is having not experienced it it's the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced it, it, you you think you're dying effectively i thought i was having a heart attack uh and lay there for a long time with my wife very gradually trying to calm me down um and she was saying it's an anxiety attack but your brain is telling you you're dying your brain is telling you you're having a heart attack and it shook me and it 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 lasted with me for a long time and after that i would have these attacks semi-regularly for quite a long time and it because of that, and because I'd never felt out of control of my body in that way, um, it, it took a real toll on me. Um, and I started to turn down doing things. I started to not travel, started to turn down anything where I thought, look, what if I have an attack? What if I have an attack? And I've got to say, you know, it's taken three years later and I am, I am in many ways kind of in a better place, but I still would say I'm a different person now and I know it could happen and I know... It's a part of, of my makeup. So when I saw Barry's question, I actually didn't. I, I, I was quite surprised by the response because I felt it was in earnest. Uh, I thought it was a genuine question. And it was the kind of question I might have asked before it happened to me because I think people can understand the theory of what this is. But for me, I definitely used to, to be sympathetic to the idea of it. But till it happened to me, I 
I had no idea what it was. So I, I didn't. I, I was a bit surprised by the the venom that came back because because I thought it was a fair question. Uh, to be honest, I think I could have phrased it better. M- maybe, but I also think it's important we talk about it. Yeah, I, it was asked with um, good intentions, but yeah, I probably yeah. Have but I also think it it's important that people are able to ask those questions and talk about because one of the biggest things for me is. I'd never had people talk about anxiety attacks or any mental health issues. So part of the biggest problems I had to deal with was I'd never spoken about these things. So I think it's it's not such a bad thing if people don't necessarily have the terminology to do it sensitively. You know, it, it's kind of good people are out there talking about it. And having seen this outpouring of people saying, well, I've also suffered these attacks, I've got to say it's been a real source of reassurance for me because I felt I had to keep very private about this because it would make people not see me as... Uh, trustworthy in the professional sphere to be honest i think and i don't know if i'm right on this but the 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 reason why i think there was a shit storm about it baz was because you asked this question which i think was badly phrased and i think and i also think i i i genuinely think and i paul you know better than me i think if someone is tweeting about their mental health I don't think they want a deep inquiry into why shit happens. I think they just want support and comfort. And I think there are other people on social media as well who are struggling, who don't want to see, who don't even want to perceive that someone thinks, oh, actually, what is this? I don't get it. You know, it it, it appeared dismissive. But also because he replied very politely explaining what it was because you asked in good faith and he saw that and you didn't respond to that, but you did respond to a million other people who were telling you that you were wrong in sort of quite an aggressive way, it just seemed like you didn't give a shit about what he was saying. You were more interested in these people yelling at you. Well, the fact of the matter is that there was such an unexpected shitstorm that I didn't actually see his response uh, until this morning. Uh, that That is a fact, uh, if, if it sounds implausible. Uh, and I, I appreciate it does sound implausible, but when, it, when I did see his explanation, it, it sounded terrifying. Again, I I have no concept of what an anxiety attack is because I've never had one. But you know me well. Do you think I have a blasé attitude towards mental health? Do you think I'm unsympathetic towards people who have mental health issues? I don't at all, but if I didn't know you and I just looked at your Twitter, I would have thought you didn't give a shit. Right. Genu- genuinely. Well, that, that that's unfortunate So, um, because it's not the case. I, I never saw the response, so I'm not sure of the full exchange. But I thought the original tweet it was in it was possibly an insensitive phrasing, but I, overwhelmingly, what I really liked was it allowed people to come forward and talk about this issue. And I, I, I do think it's better to talk about something even if we don't have the, necessarily the phrasing for it. And I, I, because I didn't take it as you saying, "Well, what the hell's wrong with you? Why can't you get on with things?" Because I didn't, I don't think that was the. In, Tent, but may, maybe that's how people took it because obviously I, that would be hurtful but but especially because uh, you fear the stigma so much that if someone comes out and you says well yeah it is your problem what's wrong with you that that would, would hurt but I, I didn't read it that way but maybe I maybe I, I didn't see the full exchange properly or yeah it took me three or four readings to go right I get it you know because there are words that we've done pods on mental have words like sort of meltdown and stuff are words you've got to be quite quite careful about I think, and you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I just sort of think if you have genuine interest in those things, it just doesn't seem like a, the public Twitter. It doesn't feel like the right place to do it. Yeah, fair I enough. don't want to keep you're... attacking you, but no, I, you're I, you're I, welcome I... to if you think I was in the wrong because I put you in an awkward position as well. Uh, but you know, as as Paul said, 
people got to have a conversation about it and everyone thinks I'm a twat. So <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to take the hit, you know. So I know it was a good faith question. It was, it was kind of like the belligerent doubling down on something when lots of people were saying, this isn't cool. And they weren't like swearing. They weren't yelling at you. It wasn't like a kind of, it, it was just that. Yeah, well, some people were being, you know, uh, understandably annoyed and others were being dicks about it. That's the the nature of the beast, I suppose. It just uh, should yeah. stick to, you know, uh, <laughs> banal observations about uh, my dinner or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I, you, you have a, look, we've got loads of questions about it. I hope that... Well, if there are any other questions you want to ask, feel free. I'm, I'm happy to answer them. Uh, I'll just read what some people have said because we've sort of covered it all, but I think it is worth doing that. Um, Tom says, I doubt this will get mentioned, but it'll be interesting to see whether the pod is prepared to look in-house to see whether attitudes there impact on people online. Uh, Richard said, Barry's initial tweet in response to someone's trouble and his subsequent belittling of the author's explanation of how he's doing today is a question for the pod. I took so much from Archie's experiences on the pod that flies in the uh, face of this. Hold on now. I didn't belittle anyone. I didn't. I, sorry, I didn't belittle Harry. So I think that's an unfair accusation. I just thought it came across like you didn't care. That's what, that's, that's how I read it because when I woke up, there'd be no responses to him apart from... Oh, no, no, I tell you what, I tell you what there was. Someone had said, I hope you're feeling better. And you replied to that saying, does that seriously make you feel better? Someone coming in replying, you know, like someone replied to your tweet going, I'm sorry you're feeling this way, Harry. And you replied going, seriously, Harry, does this make you feel better? Someone you don't know saying you're okay. And it just seemed like you were just, and, and that I was, it, it did look like you didn't care. All right. Like if well, you go to I, your, well your thing. That, that isn't the case. So, but, uh, you know that that isn't the case i of course i care i don't want to see anyone struggling okay that's good well i I think it was a conversation worth having um and uh yeah we'll end the pod there i guess um thank you barry thank you for that inquisition um uh i I hope i hope it was fine well absolutely um yeah as i say i i i sorry i put you in a position where you felt you had to have a that awkward conversation. The one thing I'm genuinely gutted about is that Harry was already having a bad day and I seem to have made it worse and, and I can't apologise enough to him for that. And I, I sincerely hope he, he's feeling better. Uh, Paul, thanks very much. Thanks at the end for your honesty, mate. And like obviously, as with Harry, we hope you are... I hope you're doing well. Oh, thanks, mate. No, thanks for having me on the pod. Um, thank you. Lay notice as well. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, 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 very good of you. And stood through the whole thing. Cheers, Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian. <laughs>